Thank you, Grace and Kirk. Great song for us as we get ready this Sunday to continue in our message series on everyone to everywhere, getting the gospel everywhere. If I should just stand and grab your Bible with me this morning and turn to Acts 13. As Pastor Bruce is going to be uh, continuing in his series, getting us ready for our World Outreach Celebration. Today we're going to be reading Acts chapter 13, and we're going to be reading verses 14 through 41. We're going to see Paul proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, and we're going to use this as our text. So listen along while I read Acts chapter 13, verses 14 through 41. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about forty years he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, and who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think that I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that he had written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who were his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, and that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another psalm, You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw no corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were declare it to you. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Acts and, and Paul's journeys and Paul's boldness in proclaiming Jesus. May we have the same boldness as a church and as a people to proclaim your name. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, again, this morning we are continuing in our series in the book of Acts here. And we're focusing on Acts chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16 in a series that we are simply calling Everyone to Everywhere. It's the theme of our series. It's the theme of our upcoming World Outreach Celebration. And the reason for that is, is because our, this is our mission. Our mission is really, it's, it's all about getting the gospel here, there, and everywhere and doing that through the power of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus reminds us in Acts 1.8, when He tells us, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That is our mission. Everyone, everywhere, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and the church at Antioch, here in Acts 13, took this to heart. They begin to be used by God as an instrument of getting the gospel to everyone. The Spirit called Barnabas and Saul to go, and the church at Antioch sent them. The gospel was on the move, and Paul and Barnabas were sent out on their very first missionary journey. And we learned last Sunday that we can expect some successes and setbacks when we go for Jesus Christ when getting the gospel everywhere. And so we learn that when opposition arises, when, when disappointments come, don't quit. Keep going the distance and keep sharing the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul and Barnabas did here in Acts 13 when they sailed from this little island of Cyprus and went on to the mainland of Asia Minor. And from there they continued to travel north into the Roman province of Galatia to another city called Antioch, a different Antioch. The first Antioch is Antioch in Syria. This is now Antioch in Pisidia. And this Antioch was located in the mountains of modern-day Turkey. It's at this Antioch where Paul stands and preaches one of the greatest sermons ever recorded for us in the Bible. In fact, it's the very first sermon of Paul that's recorded for us here. I remember, and oh, do I remember it well, preaching my very first sermon right here in our church, right here on this platform over 25 years ago. I was a nervous wreck, and it bombed. I mean, it was bad. My wife tells me it wasn't that bad, but I didn't know. I was like, man, Lord, please let somebody come back next week. Hopefully I didn't scare everyone off and out of here. In fact, I, I love what Gordon McDonald said of one sermon he preached years ago. He said the sermon was so bad that I asked someone to give the closing prayer while I left the building, ran home, and spent the afternoon in the fetal position trying to forget I'd preached that morning. <laughs> let me tell you, everybody that preaches, every pastor feels that way sometimes after they preach a sermon. They just want to go home and afterwards and crawl up in their chair in front of the TV and like, oh, forget that day. Matt Chandler, who's a pastor in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, said, I have my first sermon on my computer and it's painful. All of it. Exegesis, application, flow of thought, illustrations, theology. It was a train wreck of epic proportions. Lucky for us, though, Paul preached a very powerful sermon that captured the heart 
of his audience, captured the attention of his audience. In fact, Paul's sermon was so powerful, get this, that they asked him to come back the next Sabbath and preach again. And let me tell you, that's what every preacher wants to hear. Give us more, give us more. Maybe not necessarily at that time, you know, to go on and on and on, but hey, give us more. And I just love what Luke says about Paul here in verse 16. It says, then Paul stood up and motioning with his hands. Most of the time in that day and age, rabbis would sit down to teach. But Paul is here standing up and he's using hand motions and he's just kind of going for it. Man, this is my kind of preacher. But the most important thing to take away from Paul's sermon here in Acts 13 is not his hand motions, but rather his courage to stand up and proclaim Jesus Christ when the opportunity came. In fact, that's the whole big idea I want us to leave leave here with this morning. It's the big idea I want us to put into practice. I want this big idea to just kind of grip your heart, and that's this. When when the Spirit opens a door from the gospel, seize the moment to proclaim Jesus Christ. That is the application of what we're going to see this morning. Listen, you may not be called to preach like the Apostle Paul, but every Christ follower here is called to seize the moment and proclaim Jesus when the opportunity comes our way. This is what we pray for. In fact, years later, this was Paul's prayer request in Colossians 4.3 when he writes, And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ. And so we pray that God will give us gospel opportunities. We pray God will open, open a door for the gospel. And when those doors open, we pray that we will not back down in courage but that we will stand up in, or back down in fear, but we will stand up in courage and seize the moment to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. That day in that synagogue in Acts 13, God provided a gospel opportunity for Paul. God opened the door for the gospel, and Paul seized the moment to proclaim the gospel. Luke tells us here in verses 14 and 15, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia. They went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. What an opportunity! The synagogue leaders opened the door wide for Paul, and Paul seized the moment when he stood up and motioning with his hand, said in verse 16, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. In other words, what Paul is getting ready to proclaim is worthy of your attention. It's worth hearing with an open mind, an open heart. It's a matter of life and death, what I'm getting ready to say to you. So, so listen. Listen as he tells the story of Jesus Christ. And I don't know, like all good sermons, Paul's sermon here had, had three points to it. it. It had an introduction, it had an explanation, and an application. So we're just going to follow Paul's simple outline of this sermon for us here this morning. As we 
unfold and as we retell the story of Jesus Christ. The introduction, notice it. The story of Jesus is God's story. It's God's story. With a room filled mostly with Jews and God-fearing Gentiles, Paul's purpose was to convince these Jews that Jesus was the Savior of the world. And so Paul starts by telling them that the story about Jesus Christ is really all about God's story. And for the Jews, God's story was the story of what we call the Old Testament. And so Paul wisely starts there knowing who his audience is. Paul wants to show them that Jesus, he just didn't show up out of the blue. No, Jesus was part of the story that God had been writing and fulfilling for many, many years. And this is why Paul's sermon starts out sounding sort of like a history lesson in verses 17 through 21. Now Paul, he wasn't telling his audience anything that they didn't already know and hadn't already heard countless times before. After all, the synagogue leaders had just read portions of the prophets and of the law. And yet they needed to hear this story again. This time from the perspective that the, the story of Jesus is none other than God's story. This may seem to us like a, a rather boring recital of Old Testament history, but it's not. It's quite different. Most history books center on certain people who did certain deeds at certain times. People like in our American history, like Washington and Lincoln, or in other history, Hitler and Churchill. But not this story. Notice that this history doesn't center on people or events, but rather it centers on God himself. It's God who is the one working. As one commentator puts it, Paul's emphasis is on God's initiative of grace, for he is the subject of nearly all the verbs. And so look at all of the, what God does here. Notice all the things Paul says God did. Look in verse 17, it says, God chose Israel from all the people of the earth. God made them great in the land of Egypt. God led them out of Egypt with an uplifted arm. In verse 18, God put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years. In verse 19, God destroyed the seven nations of Canaan. God distributed their land as an inheritance. In verse 20, God gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. In verse 21, God gave them Saul when they asked for a king. In verse 22, God removed Saul as king and he raised up David. David as king, and then he brought Israel as Savior, Jesus. So don't miss the emphasis here of what Paul's doing. Paul starts out this sermon, this introduction by saying, hey, God did this, God did this, and God did this. In other words, Paul is saying history is all about God. God is the main actor in the unfolding of events, in the rise and the fall of kings and nations, even in the circumstances of our lives. Remember, Paul is talking to Jewish men here, a Jewish audience predominantly here, who, who know the Old Testament. They know it very well, but they didn't yet believe 
in Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Messiah. And so Paul, he's trying to get them to see that all that has taken place in their history has been setting the stage for Jesus Christ. Jesus, in other words, is the culmination of all God's work in history. And when you think about history, there's really, there are two competing views of history. One view says that all history is cyclical. That is, it just kind of goes round and round with no definite beginning or ending, and therefore history is seen as somewhat meaningless, and you're just kind of randomly caught in the middle of it all. But the other view, the other view says that history is going somewhere. Things that happen have purpose. History has a goal which was established in eternity by God himself. That's the view Paul has here in his introduction. Paul is saying God writes the script and Jesus is the key player on the stage, which brings us to the very heart of Paul's sermon, the explanation. Paul explains now how the story of Jesus is God's story of salvation. The introduction of this sermon is that the story of Jesus is God's story, but what kind of story is it? If God is the one writing this story, then what's he trying to accomplish in the story? Well, the answer to that is salvation. The story of Jesus is God's story of salvation. In fact, you drop down to verse 26, and Paul calls this a message of salvation that was sent to them just as Barnabas and Paul were sent by the Holy Spirit. And now God is doing a work in sending them this message of salvation. And this message of salvation, Paul is getting ready to explain, comes through none other than the person of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul does is he begins to explain to them some facts, some truths, about their Messiah, who Jesus Christ is. Notice this, the first fact. Jesus Christ is the promised Savior. We see this in verse 23, when Paul says, From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Now the Jews reading their Old Testaments all knew of this promise from God. They were all familiar with it. That one day... A son of David would come who would do for them what King David could not do for them. And that is save them from their sins. And so when God sent Jesus into this world, he fulfilled that long-awaited promise that they all knew about. Paul was telling them that their history was all about the promised Savior, and he has come. And so if Jesus is the promised Savior, then why did the Jewish leaders reject him when he came? Well, Paul gives two reasons why the Jewish leaders rejected the Messiah, God's Son, the one they were looking forward to coming. We see this in verse 27. Look at it with me. Paul says, For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which were read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. In other words, they condemned him to die on the cross. In other words, the reason the Jewish leaders rejected Jesus is because, one, they didn't recognize Jesus when he came. 
They didn't see Jesus for who he was. They looked at his background and they saw that he was just a carpenter's son from Nazareth and nothing good can come from Nazareth. He had no money. He had no influence. He had no standing in society. Jesus held no political clout. And so they just wrote him off. And yet Jesus lived the most remarkable sinless life ever, but they never saw it. They didn't recognize him, and a lot of people are still blind in that way even today. So they didn't recognize Jesus. Is one reason they rejected him. Number two, they didn't recognize the scriptures. Here were people who had heard the words of the Old Testament prophets read every Sabbath in the synagogue for years and years. They knew many of these prophecies by heart, but they weren't, they weren't tuned in spiritually to what they were hearing. The reading of the scriptures was just kind of another religious routine that they did on the Sabbath. People went to the synagogue, they sat down, they heard some of the Old Testament prophecies read to them, and then they went home, and they went home without being impacted by what they heard. They were just going through the motions, it was routine, it was performance. And if truth be told, we're not that different from these Jewish leaders even today. Our problem is we have the same ability to hear the Word of God, but not apply the Word of God. That is, we hear the Word, but we're not really listening to the Word. So we're not changed by the Word. You could call it selective hearing. And those of you that are married, you're all familiar with selective hearing. My wife tells me I am. I don't think she tells me that in a positive way. Think about it. The Jewish people in Paul's day, they missed the promised Savior because they refused to listen to what God had said through the prophets in the Old Testament. No wonder Paul begins his sermon by telling them to what? Listen. Men of Israel, Listen to what I'm getting ready to say to you because this is life-changing. Listen, not just with your ears, but listen with an open heart. Man, that's one of the things we pray for every morning on Sundays when we, and we gather in my office, a group of us guys, and we pray. And one of the things we pray is, God, prepare the hearts of the people that are going to come here this morning. Prepare the hearts of our guests, of our attenders, and our members. Make them ready to receive ready to hear the Word of God as it's taught and as it's preached? Are you listening, not just physically, but are you listening with your heart and your mind, ready to be changed, ready to apply the Word of God? Listen. Which brings us to the second fact. Jesus is not only the promised Savior, but Jesus Christ is the crucified Savior. Paul continues in verse 28, and he says, And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now the thing we must see here is that once again, God is writing the script. Paul says that in killing Jesus, these people, they were actually fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. To you and I, standing from afar, it seems that God had lost control and that Satan had won the day. 
But Paul says this was all part of God's redemption plan. According to verse 29, they were just carrying out all that was written concerning Jesus Christ. Which means Jesus was not a victim on the cross. Rather, He was fulfilling the very purposes of God to die for our sins. But death didn't have the last word in His life. Which brings us to the third fact about Jesus. He is the resurrected Savior. He's not just a crucified Savior. He's a resurrected Savior. Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and it was placed in a tomb. And Paul declares to them in verse 30, but God raised Him from the dead. God is still the primary player. He's the one that raised Jesus from the dead. And Paul says in verse 31 that he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem who are his witnesses to the people. And Paul goes on to declare that the resurrection of Jesus is the proof of who he is. God raising him from the dead never to die again is the ultimate validation or authentic, authentic, ultimate validation, let me keep it at that, that Jesus is the Son of God because I'm tongue-tied up here. In other words, what Paul preached on that day is what we still preach today. It's what we still proclaim today. That there is a Savior who God sent to this world to die on the cross for sinners, but God in His power raised Him up and He is still alive today. Folks, this here, what we just heard, this is God's story of salvation. And this salvation comes through none other than the person of Jesus Christ. The promised Savior, the crucified Savior, and the resurrected Savior. This is the story that Paul preached, and it's the story that we still proclaim today. It's the same gospel story. It's the same message that Paul proclaims, we proclaim. In fact, this God's story of salvation, this gospel story that we proclaim, notice this in your notes, it is the good news of what God had done done for us in Jesus Christ through his life, his death, and resurrection. You drop down to verse 32, and Paul calls this story of Jesus. He uses the term glad tidings. Glad tidings is the same thing as good news. And folks, let me tell you, indeed, it is good news. Not just for people in Antioch in the first century, but also for people here, there, and everywhere in the 21st century. So why then would we proclaim anyone else or anything else? Listen, dying people, dying people don't need practical advice. They don't need pats on the back. They don't need platitudes on how to fix their problems. What dying people need is a living Savior who can save them from their sins. This is why you may have noticed that this is why Paul did not preach his own experience. Paul did not say, hey, let me tell you what I experienced. Yes, later on, Paul would recount twice his own salvation experience, but he, all, he, he did so as purely as a means to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So please understand, the gospel is not Jesus changed my life. That's not the gospel. After all, people may cite all kinds of things that change their lives, from getting married to having kids to getting a new job to upgrading to the latest iPhone. Changed my life. The gospel is not Jesus changed my life, although that's what the gospel does when we believe it and receive it. It changes our lives. Make no mistake about it. But the gospel, first and foremost, is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, in his life, death, and resurrection. This is the gospel Paul was committed to proclaiming. It's the gospel we are committed to proclaiming. It's the gospel that we want to get to here, there, and everywhere. In fact, years later, Paul would even write in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, listen to his words, he says, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. And that's interesting in and of itself, that he wanted to remind them of the gospel which tells us that we sometimes forget what the gospel is, don't we? We forget the relevance, we forget the significance, we forget the power behind the gospel that it has. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. And so Paul said, let me write to you again, let me remind you what this gospel is that we are committed to and what we proclaim, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, he says. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That's the gospel we proclaim. But it's at this point that we kind of need to stop and ask a question. Yeah, but so what? In other words, yes, the story of Jesus is God's story of salvation, but so what? Why does it matter? What difference does it make in my life? And Paul gives us the answer to this so what question very clearly in the application of his sermon. Notice at number three, the story of Jesus is God's story of salvation for everyone who believes. As Paul moves from explanation of the gospel to application of the gospel, he says something that would have hit these people like a thunderbolt in verses 38 and 39. He says, therefore, in other words, in light of what I've just told you about God's story of Jesus, and that it's salvation, and salvation comes in, through Jesus Christ, in light of that, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now remember, the story of Jesus is God's story of salvation. But what kind of salvation? What kind of salvation are we talking about here? Because, after all, you can be, quote, saved from a lot of different things, right? Some people tell stories of how they were saved from financial ruin. Some people tell stories of how they were saved from that relationship 
Man, that was a bad one. I can't believe I let myself get caught up in that guy or girl. So glad I came to my senses and was saved from that. Some people tell stories of how they were saved from an abusive home or poor self-esteem or some type of addiction or whatever the case may be. So what is Jesus promised to save us from in the gospel here? Paul tells us. He's very clear on it. And it comes in the form of a promise to us. Look at this in your notes. God offers forgiveness of sins and justification to everyone who believes in Jesus. First, God offers forgiveness of sins. Now just stop right there, because that ought to blow you away. Our sins are wiped away. Our sins are no longer held against us over our heads. Our greatest need is forgiveness of sins. And our greatest joy is to know that my sins are forgiven. Because I don't know about you, I commit them frequently. And it is great to know that I can go to my God, my Father, and confess my sins and repentance and ask for His forgiveness, and He will forgive me faithfully every time, cleanse me, and make me righteous all over again. But I have to tell you, that's not what shocked those Jews that day in the synagogue. What shocked them specifically was what Paul said in verse 39. Look at it one more time. And by him, that is Jesus, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. That was the thunderbolt. Justified. Now there's a deep theological word for you. But it's a great one. To be justified means to be made right with God. And that ought to be mind-blowing. To think that I, as a sinner, I can be made right with a holy God. is mind-blowing. And that's what really shocked his audience that day in the synagogue. These Jews, you have to understand, they loved the law of Moses. They worshipped the law of Moses. They thought the Ten Commandments was everything, and it became their religion. But Paul declares to them, listen, your religion can't make you right with God. Whoa, step back from that. He is literally dismantling the foundations in which they were trying to live. They were trying their best to live up to the law of Moses, though many of them realized that they were failing. But they still thought that the way to be made right with God was through obedience, was through, through trying to, to be their best and do their best. But here's Paul. In one phrase, he's telling them that you'll never be right with God in that way. And he just, he just dismantled every concept they've ever grown up with. He's dismantling every belief system they've ever thought about. Basically, Paul is telling them, the law that you worship, the law you think is so great, that law won't help you. In fact, that law will only condemn you because you'll never obey that law good enough no matter how hard you try. You cannot save yourself, in other words, Paul is saying. But Paul, in the same breath, after this, he also tells them, hey, listen, don't despair. God has provided good news. 
God has provided a way to make us right with Him, even though we can't be good enough ourselves. And that way, Paul says, is through, who do you think? Jesus Christ. And Paul says it's for everyone who believes. It's not about trying to be good. It's not about trying to do good. It's all about faith in what Jesus has already done for us through his death and resurrection. But just like the Jews in Paul's day, oh my gosh, we have a hard time getting this. And the reason that we, even in our day, have a hard time getting this because we think we can still save ourselves. We have this mindset that I got myself into this problem, I could get myself out of this problem. And this is one problem you cannot get yourself out of. You cannot get yourself out of the problem of sin on your own. And so this gospel truth is sometimes hard for us to embrace, but God's promise of forgiveness and justification is for everyone who simply believes in Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul adds this warning here at the end of his sermon. And Paul's warning, let me give it to you first and then explain it, is this. Don't scoff at God's salvation in Jesus. Don't scoff at it lest you suffer the consequences. You see, Paul is warning them, of missing the significance of Jesus Christ, and thereby missing the salvation He alone could give them and going on to die in their sins and suffering the consequences of eternal judgment. In verses 40 and 41, we see this warning of Paul. Look at it with me one more time. He says, beware. Beware. And folks, that warning is still true for us today. Beware. Therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. And then he quotes from Habakkuk. Behold, you despisers or scoffers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. In other words, Paul is saying, listen, He's speaking to these Jews and he's telling them, don't be like the Israelites, your ancestors, your fathers. Don't be like them during the days of Habakkuk who refused to believe in the work that God was doing in their day. Don't scoff like they did. Don't scoff now at God's work now in Jesus Christ, the promised Savior who's come. Don't repeat the same mistake as they made. And I personally, I don't think this warning was spoken harshly by Paul. I think when he got to the end of this message here, this sermon, I think he is, he is saying this warning, he is saying it in sadness and with compassion. And he is urging them, don't be like them, instead believe in the Savior. Paul wants you to know even now, that when you hear about God's amazing grace in the gospel, that He loves you, He accepts you by virtue of nothing you've done, but by what Christ has done for you, that that moment, when you hear it, that is a moment of crisis in your life. Because at that moment, you can either accept the gospel and bask in the glory of God's grace, or you can scoff at it, reject it, and turn away. And if you reject it, you will find yourself on the very edge of eternal judgment. 
Because only God's grace in Jesus Christ can save you. Now, even now, at this moment, Paul's sermon still rings in our ears. The gospel of Jesus Christ still cries out. And it cries out for a response. And so let me ask you, what is your response to the gospel? Will you believe in Jesus and be saved, or will you reject God's salvation in Jesus and be judged? I love what Paul says, going back to verse 38. He says, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And what I love here is that the gospel is personal. When Paul says, let it be known to you, the you is plural, obviously, to the whole audience, and yet that plural is personal. In this sermon, Paul moves from the history of Israel to the coming of Christ to the need for you to believe. And that you is vitally important. It means the gospel is not theoretical, nor is it some impractical truth. No, the gospel is life. It's eternal life for Paul's audience and for us and for you. Jesus was born and he was born for you. Jesus died and he died for you. Jesus rose and he rose for you. And Jesus offers forgiveness of sins and he offers forgiveness of sins for you. But we need to believe to receive this amazing gift. And my question is very simply, have you? And if you haven't yet, will you today? Why should you or anyone else believe in Jesus? Because the story of Jesus is God's story. It's God's story of salvation for all who believe. And I wonder where you find yourself in this story. Where would you identify yourself in the story of salvation? God's story. Listen, don't wait to believe. Jesus is coming. And when he does, it will be too late to get in on God's story of salvation. Which also means we need to be ready. And we need to be ready with urgency to seize the moment to share God's story of salvation. Folks, listen, people everywhere still need the gospel. Which means we need to seize the moment to proclaim the gospel with people who need to hear God's story of salvation in Jesus. Are we ready? Are we ready to seize that moment when gospel opportunities come? And so like Paul, may we be ready. May we seize the moment to proclaim the gospel with people that we know who God brings into our paths who still need to hear about Jesus Christ. Paul writes, and I close with this, in Romans chapter 10, verses 13 and 15, he says, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach or proclaim the good news. Folks, seize the moment when gospel opportunities come. Let's pray.
Before we pray, let me ask you again, where do you find yourself in God's story of salvation? Do, do you know the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ alone? And if not, then let me encourage you to right now believe in your heart and call on the name of the Lord in prayer, right where you're seated. For those of you who do believe in Jesus, who do you know who needs to hear about Jesus? What is their name? What is their face? And are you seizing the moments to share the gospel with them? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And that is providing forgiveness of sins and making us right with you through faith in Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, give us the boldness and the courage to stand and seize the moments to share your story of salvation with those who don't yet know Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As the praise team sings, this is your opportunity to just kind of pray and apply this message, to ask God for the courage, the boldness, or perhaps to even ask God for the first time for the forgiveness of sins and to save you.